Turn, if you would, to the first chapter of 1 John. We just started this last week. Uh, I abandoned my wife at home with uh, five children, the oldest of which is three. Now, she only had five for 20 minutes, so that's good. Now she's down to two. We had three of them spending the night at our house, and they left early this morning. Um, Y'all are aware that I teach uh, high school students during the week, and I've been teaching economics. I've never taught economics before, but I know a little bit about it. And I read the book this week in preparation for class, and to be honest, there were some things in the chapter I didn't particularly agree with. So I told the students at the start of class, I said, on Sundays, I teach at our church, and I teach the Bible, and I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And what that means is I can tell you I don't understand something. I can even tell you that I don't like something, but I can't tell you that something's wrong. And then I picked up the economics book, and I said, this isn't the Bible. And then I told them what I had problems with. We need to remind ourselves continually that the Bible is the Word of God. It is not just the nice sayings of some person who sat down at some point in history and wrote something. It is, in fact, the Word of God. We started 1 John last week. We made it through about five or six verses. And we saw that John is writing this to the church... He is the elder statesman, probably at this point the last living apostle. And he's telling them what they need to know to encourage them. And his goal is that they would have fellowship with God and with each other. And in doing so, our joy will be complete. And that was last week's lesson. We barely made it into verse, I don't know, five, but we'll pick up there just to start the story. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We had a brief discussion about this last week. The fact that God is light is a picture of his holiness. There is light and there is darkness. There is the world of sin. There is the holiness of God, which shines in pure light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Following that statement, there are five conditional statements presented to us. A conditional statement is simply, if this then something else. And he presents five of these for our understanding. So, number one, if we say, if we verbally tell people that we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we are living in the world of darkness, while at the same time telling people that we do in fact have fellowship with God, we are lying 
and we are not telling the truth. Does that bother anybody? No. <laughs> then we're off the hook. Let's keep going. We're going to come back to these. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. You see what he's saying, right? You're either walking in darkness or you're walking in the light. Briefly last week, we talked about Ephesians chapter 5, where there's this long discussion about our need to walk in the light and avoid the deeds of darkness. And there's a list of them over there. Go read the fifth chapter if you want to know what that list is. So, how do we have fellowship with God? This is an easy question. Come on. By walking in the light. By walking in the light that God has provided. Does that bother anybody yet? Gosh, y'all are easy today. <laughs> if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We'll talk about that in just a moment. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay. If we say we have no sin, let's have a show of hands. How many of you say you have no sin? Why would you say you had no sin? Well, the primary reason is you don't think there is such a thing as sin. Okay? Many modern individuals will acknowledge that they make mistakes. You know, I should have gone here and I went there. I shouldn't have gotten angry, but I did. I shouldn't have, but I did. I should have, but I didn't. A lot of modern people will say they make mistakes, but the idea of sin is connected to the idea of God. And if you do not believe in God, you do not believe in sin. If you believe, you know, I've lived a pretty good life. I'm at least above average in moral activity. I'm better than you are. So obviously I'm okay. If you say that you have no sin, hmm, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, at what point in our lives are we making this comment? If we're making this comment before salvation, then we're deceiving ourselves because we don't know that we need salvation, right? If I have no awareness of sin, if I have no idea that I have violated the word of God, that I have lived a life in a world created by God, who is the rightful ruler of this world, and I have ignored him as that rightful ruler. If I am an unbeliever, I will never become a believer because I have no 
need for salvation. If I haven't sinned, I don't need a savior. If I'm not lost, I don't need to be found. But he tells you, you're deceiving yourself. Quick question. How many of us have sinned? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, so that's before we're saved. Let's say after we're saved. Surely after we're saved, we are supposed to stop sinning. You know, one day you're lost, the next day you're saved, and you just wake up being perfect. How many of you have had that experience? (laughs) I don't even think I did it while I was asleep. Paul, in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, has this discussion about the things that I want to do, I don't do, the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing, wretched man that I am. And there's actually a theological debate about whether Paul, in the seventh chapter, is talking about his pre-conversion life or whether he's talking about his everyday life as a believer. And I'm of the strong opinion he's talking about his everyday life as a believer because that's the experience all of us have. Now, why am I pressing this point? Chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to get here in just a moment. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What John is going to tell them in this book repeatedly is the life of the believer should be one where we do not sin. In fact, it's going to be even stronger when we get over to the uh, second or third chapter, and it's going to say, if if you keep sinning, you're not having fellowship with God. You go, oh, shoot. But it says right here, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So which is it? Am I, as a believer, supposed to not sin? Or am I, as a believer, going to keep sinning? And the answer to the question is, yes. You knew that was coming. You've been in here before. There is a problem that we as Christians, modern Christians, sometimes fall into. And once again, Paul actually addresses this in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. And that is the idea, I am saved by grace. I am persevering in my faith by grace. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. What John is going to tell us is you can be saved... But if you're walking in the darkness, you're not going to have fellowship with other believers or have fellowship with God. There is this idea that somehow I could be saved and not experience the fellowship that God wants me to have. Now, 
There's also the idea that I could think that I'm saved and not really be saved. I could think that I'm saved and not really have experienced new life. If you've been in here before, you've heard my silly little example. You take the pig and you take the cat and you throw them into the mud hole. Okay? They're both going to be muddy. But the cat is going to get out of the mud as quick as possible and clean himself off. The pig is going to enjoy it. That's the picture of us as a believer. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says, those who are mature should help the person who has fallen into temptation. The idea is we are going to sin. But it shouldn't be the place that we enjoy. If, do I dare say it, if we have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives, it is an indicator that maybe something isn't the way we think it is. So here is the balance of the Christian life. We are called to be holy. We are called to walk in the light. We are called to follow Jesus. And yet we acknowledge that we still have a flesh that leads us into sin. And that's the struggle. When is the struggle over? About two seconds after you die. If the struggle has stopped, it probably means you've given up. You've just said, I'm going to sin. I can't get over this sin. Why bother? It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. I'll just do it. And John is going to say, if that is the attitude, you're not walking in the light. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Memorize the next verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the cat gets thrown in the mud. The cat gets out of the mud and starts cleaning themselves off. We as believers fall into sin. We acknowledge that we've fallen into sin. We're not deceiving ourselves that it's okay. How do we get out like the cat and clean ourselves off? We confess our sin. Now, what's the point of confessing? Doesn't God already know? Doesn't God know what we've done? Doesn't God know better than we know what we've done? Well, of course he does. The question is, do you know what you've done? We need to confess our sin in order to acknowledge that we have done wrong. We have done that which violates the word of God. Just go read the wonderful psalm when David 
kills Uriah, takes Bathsheba, and he is confronted by the prophet, and he says, God against you and you only have I sinned. So, what does confession look like? Well, God, I know I got angry, but it was her fault. How many of you have ever done that? I know I shouldn't have done that, God, but if you hadn't put me in that situation, you ever heard that before? Go read the third chapter of Genesis. God, that woman you gave me. God, it's your fault. And if it's not your fault, it's her fault. It's somebody else's fault. That's not confession. That isn't confession. Confession is acknowledgement that we have chosen to violate the word of God. But wait, I didn't choose. It just happened. Yeah, you chose to violate the word of God. But look at the rest of this phrase. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Faithful means he keeps his promises. Faithful means that he says, I will forgive, that I will use the blood of Jesus to cover every sin. He is faithful. But what does this have to do with justice? Well, remember what Jesus did when he paid the penalty for your sins and mine. You remember this, right? We sometimes think, I mean, when my kids were younger, well, yesterday, I don't know, <laughs> and they would do something that I knew was wrong. But you know, I just didn't want to deal with it. And so I kind of pretended I didn't see it, hoping it would just go away. And sometimes we think that's what God did. Okay? I know you sinned. I even know you're sorry for your sin. So I'll just pretend it didn't happen. No, that's not it at all. God does not just dismiss sin. Sin has to be paid for. The word we will see in just a moment is propitiation. That's a big word that says somebody has to pay. The wonder of what Jesus did for us is that it isn't that God just pretended that there was no sin, but rather that God, God's justice was fulfilled by Jesus, the sinless human being, paying the price for our sin. So if God does not accept the price, then God is not being just. But God is just. He is faithful and just. 
to forgive us of our sin. So, we sin. What do we do? We confess our sin. How do we confess our sin? By acknowledging that we have violated God's instruction, His word, His law, whatever you want to call it. Let's keep going. If we say we have not sinned, we, have, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is kind of a repeat of one of the earlier ones, just to make you understand. If you think you have not sinned, not only are you deceived, you're saying God is lying, because God says you have. That's the easy part. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Notice his term of endearment that he begins this with, my little children. But if anyone does sin, okay, you caught that, right? I'm going to beat this to death. I want you to not sin. But if you do sin, what is the number one goal? Don't sin. What is the reality that we live in? But if you do sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, we talk about Jesus Christ, and we use that name a lot, or we say, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting that John says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why? Because the fact that Jesus Christ is the righteous is what allows him to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. Because you see, if he was not the righteous then when Jesus died, it would be just like you and I dying for our own sin. But because he was the righteous, is the righteous, he can pay the penalty for our sin. We have an advocate with the Father. Go read the book of Hebrews. Long discussion. Where is Jesus right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. I've used this silly, this silly example before, but it just kind of helps me understand what's happening. You know, God is sitting up there, and he looks down at me, and he says, gosh, Kyle just sinned again. And Jesus turns to him and says, I paid for that one. And God says, okay. I know it's silly, but you get the picture right. He sinned again. I paid for that one. Okay. He sinned again. I paid for that one too. He is advocating for us. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation means he paid the price. He satisfied God with the sacrifice 
that was offered. It is very similar to the idea of the atonement. What is atonement? That is the shedding of the blood to pay the penalty for the sins of the people. Remember, in uh, Israel, they had the Day of Atonement. What is that? That was the day that the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. He entered the presence of God. He went in there with a sacrifice for his sin, and then he went in there with a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He was atoning for the sins of the people. Back to the book of Hebrews. We are told that they did this every year. Why did they do this every year? Because ultimately, the blood of animals cannot pay the penalty for your sin. But Jesus, who was the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice, was able to be the sacrifice, the propitiation for your sin. And not only yours alone. It's like, I've got a cup of salvation. I've just got a little cup. I might be able to save three of you. But that's all I've got. No. He's got enough to save everyone in the whole world. Now, if you really wanted to get into a Lengthy discussion, we could talk about predestination and all that stuff. We're not going to do that. <laughs> because we finally got to the real lesson. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If you remember, in last week's lesson, when we did the introduction, I made the comment that the word know, K-N-O-W, is used 39 times in the book of 1 John. That's a lot of times for one little book. Uh, I've got a list of them all here. I could read them to you, except we'll get to them in due course. This is the first time we see it, though, so we're going to have a discussion about what it means to know. And not only what it means, because this one is even a double use, how do you know that you know Jesus? The second use of the word know in this sentence bears with it the idea of a relationship. You know, in Hebrew terminology sometimes, the word know is actually used in a relational term, okay? Particularly the relationship of a man and his wife, okay? You can take it from there. But how do you know? How do you know that you have a relationship with God? What does it mean to know something. Well, I just know it. I know the lights are on in this room because I'm sitting here and I can see the lights in the room. Well, it actually isn't that easy to define, 
In fact, there's a whole branch of philosophy known as epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. How do we know anything? One commonly accepted definition of knowing something is justified, true belief. What in the world does that mean? Well, I know something, first off, if I have a valid reason for knowing it. Secondly, that which I claim to know happens to also be true, okay? And I do believe it to be true. So, I know the lights are on in this room because my senses tell me the lights are on this room. It happens to be true, and I believe that it's true. Now, just in case you're a little confused, there's a distinction between the discussion of truth and the discussion, discussion of knowing, right? There are things that are true that I don't know, okay? Are the lights on in this room right here behind us? I have no idea, okay? It could be true. Philosophically, we talk about truth as being that which conforms to reality. That is true. But the second question is, do we know what's true? And that's the question of knowledge. So it is justified. I have a reason to believe it. Is it true? If it's not true, you don't really know it. You may think you know it, but it's not true. You don't know something. And you believe that it's true. But now we're really going to go off into the weeds. You just thought we were getting started. What does it take to justify your belief? What is a valid reason for believing something to be true? Remember, 39 times in this book, he's going to tell us to know something. How are we going to know that we know anything at all? Philosophically, we can break history up into three sections. If you remember, a year or two ago, we had a brief series of uh, talks about worldviews. And we actually talked about this. So if you remember that, this is a review. And it's kind of weird because of these three time periods, the middle one is known as the modern period. The modern period in philosophical terms is, well, the Enlightenment, the age of reason, the scientific revolution. So that's the modern period. And before that, you have the pre-modern. And after that, you have the post-modern. Why is this important? Because we live in a post-modern age. Okay? If you don't understand that, then you don't know the definition of postmodern. So in the pre-modern period, which go to the 1700s and go back in time, there were three ways that you could justify knowing something. Number one was revelation. The Bible says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
So I can turn to you and say, God is light, and you can know that because the Bible said it was true. The second one is reason. I thought about it, and I determined based on my reason that something is true. The third one is experience. I stick my hand in the fire, it burns my hand, and I learn, don't stick your hand in the fire. So in the pre-modern period, there is revelation, reason, and experience. Then the scientific revolution, the age of enlightenment came into existence. And guess what? They rejected the idea of revelation. Rene Descartes says, if I can't understand totally every aspect of everything, I am not going to accept it as true. Bacon says, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist. This is the scientific worldview. I pull out my tape measure, I can measure. I have a scale, I can weigh. And if I can see it, if I can measure it, it's real. Guess what? Revelation doesn't fall into that at all. So revelation was kind of moved out of the way to the world of opinion. And then, of course, there was experience. They still acknowledge that. Uh, if you've ever read Pascal's Pensees, which are his thoughts, that's what Pensee means, Pascal is actually rebelling against that. He is a mathematician, scientist, philosopher, and he says, you've just abandoned everything that's important in life. You can't measure love. You can't measure God. You've abandoned all that, but it won out. Reason was going to be the path by which we reached utopia. Then something happened. You know what that something was? Well, we could start with World War I. A million people dying in the trenches of Europe. And you know what? These weren't ignorant people. These were the smartest people on the planet. Then forget World War I, World War II. Six million Jews killed by the most intelligent people on the planet. Guess what? This reason stuff doesn't seem to be helping. We're not going to get to utopia by reason. And in fact, the other big thing that happened was communism. Most of the postmodernists were communist Marxists who got uh, messed up when they saw Stalin in action. They realized this isn't the worker's paradise. This isn't beautiful. This isn't wonderful. All of these great ideas coming from our reason, and we're going to get rid of reason. And what are you left with? Experience. I feel it's true. It's true. And guess what? How do you know 
that you have a relationship with God. Well, I feel it. Good. You're a good postmodernist. John is not going to tell us. You know that you know because you feel a certain way. Why? Because he knows and you know and I know that tomorrow I may not feel that way. Tomorrow I may have something bad for lunch, not feel very good, and I am going to feel that it's not true. Your feelings are good and wonderful. Your feelings are a gift from God, but they are not the source of truth. What is the source of truth? God's Word. I can give you, if we had another hour, a nice, rational argument about why it is not irrational to believe the Word of God. It goes something like this. If there is a God, stop. Is it rational to believe there is a God? Yes, it is rational. And we could walk through the steps of that. If there is a God, and it is rational to believe that, is it rational to believe that that God has communicated to us in some form or fashion? And the answer is yes. It is rational to believe that God has communicated certain things to us. If there is a God and He has communicated to us, is it rational of us to believe that which the Creator of the universe has communicated to us. We're going to work our way through the rest of 1 John. And 39 times we're going to see the word no. And I want you to understand we have justification for believing that when God says it's true, it's true. We have rational reasons to believe that it's true. And we need to believe that it's true. You see, the postmodernist doesn't even acknowledge the question, what does it mean to know that you have a relationship with God? That question doesn't mean anything to them. I think I told you a couple of years ago, I read a book, The Meaning of Life, a very short introduction. That's the actual title of the book. And you would think the book would be about the meaning of life. Well, he did talk about that for a few pages at the end. The bulk of the book is why would you ask the stupid question? Why would you even expect there to be a meaning of life? And that's how the postmodernist would address this question. How do I know that I have a relationship with God? What's wrong with you? Why do you even ask that question? That question makes no sense. But to John, to John, no question is more important than that. The modern mind 
once again, modern being this middle period, took everything that was important and pushed it to the world of opinion. And the postmodern mind looked at that and said, if you think your opinion matters to anybody else, you're being oppressive. Don't do that. But the mind of the scripture says, the creator of the universe has sent his son so that we can have salvation. And that when we have salvation, we can have fellowship with him. That relationship that Adam had with God in the garden before the fall, you can have that too. How do we know that we know him? Well, that's actually the rest of the verse. It simply says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, that's next week's lesson. But let me remind you of one thing before we leave, though. It does not say, if you keep your commandments, the commandments, you will be saved. It doesn't say that. Don't think that it says that. It doesn't say that. What it says, if we know that we know, we know because we are doing that which God would have us to do. The keeping of God's commandments is the product, not the cause of our salvation. Go read the book of John. By this, we demonstrate our love for God by keeping his commandments. It's not a demonstration of his love for us. He doesn't have to demonstrate that to us. Why? Because he sent his son to die on our behalf. How much more demonstration are you going to need? I don't know about you, but there's not a one of you that I would sacrifice my son for. Sorry. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So next week we will discuss the rest of this one verse. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son I pray, Lord, that we would not be deceived, but rather that we would know that we know him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.